Okay, Ezra, if you guys wouldn't mind opening. I want to start this morning by basically just saying, as we go through this, you know, I want to basically begin everything that we're going to be looking at here this morning by saying, throughout the Bible, throughout all history, one of the things that you begin to pick up is, is God actually thinks He's great. Right? That might sound like kind of a, a big statement. God actually thinks He's great. But think about that. If you or I were to be the type of people that were like, I know I'm great. Right? We call that arrogance. Right? We call that person needing to be humbled. Uh, because for some reason that never sits well with anybody to go around and begin to think, hey, I'm great. I know I'm great. In fact, I want to establish my greatness, rallying together as many people as I can to proclaim how great I am. That's called cult. That's called weird. That's called movie star. That's whatever you want to call it. It's just, it's just not correct. We, we, we have something that fights against that and resists that. However, the story of the Bible is really the story of how God, who actually thinks He's great, is constantly on the move to establish His greatness. It's really the story of the Bible. From, from the very beginning to the very end. And everything in between. It's the story of God seeking to gather together people who actually believe that He's great and are seeking to establish His greatness so that as surely as the waters cover the earth, so would the glory of God cover the earth. That's the concept of the Bible. God thinks He's great and wants the world to know that He's great. People that live with the concept of actually not thinking that God is great, Bible's term for that is we're still in sin. We're blinded. The God of this world has blinded our eyes. Where does He blind our eyes to? He's blinded our eyes to the reality that God is great. That's what, so with salvation is God opening our eyes to seeing what? That He's great. That's, that's what salvation is. Salvation is God opening our eyes, and not only opening our eyes, but Raising our hearts, changing our hearts so that now we are affected by the fact that God is great. Love God. I love His greatness. I love how good He is. And so what happens is God gathers together people that actually believe He is great, sends them out in the world to do what? To pronounce to the rest of the world how great our God is. That's what God does. Sin is the absence of the recognition that God's great. See, what happens, sin actually even goes further than that. It's way further than that because what happens is we actually begin to think that we're great. We elevate ourselves. We worship ourselves. We worship idols. We worship other gods. Jesus comes and saves us from that false worship, false conformity into the things of this world, and opens our eyes and sees that He's great. And then we begin to walk, uh, walk, follow after, walk after the living God, who is truly, eternally great. So salvation. The book of Ezra really is the reestablishing of God's people back into the land of Israel to establish His greatness as the center point of all things. That's what the book of Ezra is about. God's saying, listen, I want to reestablish you guys in my land, in the land of Canaan, which is really is the center of ancient trade routes and everything else in the ancient world, so that God can demonstrate to the world that He is a great God. Okay? That's what the book of Ezra is about. 
So really, in terms of the history behind that, uh, I want to kind of give you guys a little bit of a brief history. We looked at this really in depth last week, so again, that's why I say check out last week's messages. But I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a history, kind of a few little bullet points as to what's happening, just to catch you guys up to speed as to why the book of Ezra and what's happening in the book of Ezra. Uh, we looked at this again a little bit last week. Ezra, he was a scribe, and uh, meaning he was, he was part of the, kind of the priestly group of people. Um, in fact, uh, the Jews very, very highly... Uh, you know, admire Ezra. In fact, some scholars, Jewish scholars, actually say things like this about Ezra. That God could have actually delivered the law through Ezra had not Moses beat him to the punch. All right? that's, that's the way they view Ezra. They're like, this guy is so great that even he, out of every other Jew alive on the planet, that, that he could have been the guy to deliver the most sacred of all writings, the Torah. Except... Moses beat him with a punch. I mean, this is how these guys view Ezra. It's like, he is a great guy. Uh, it's believed that Ezra wrote uh, First and Second Chronicles, some debate over that, um, that he, and that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah kind of go hand together, hand in hand together, uh, that they're really in sort of the ancient text, one particular book. And so I'm going to get you guys sort of hopefully up to speed as to where we're at. Israel's been a nation now for just about a thousand years. That's what's happening in the book of Ezra. They've been going now for about a thousand years. God brings them out of the land of Canaan. I'm sorry, God brings them into the land of Canaan from the land of Egypt. And for now about a thousand years, they've been living in the land of Canaan. God has given them kings and all sorts of great blessings have come upon them. There have been moments where they've had great successes, great victories. There have been moments where they've had great trials and difficulties. The nation divides between the north and the south. They end up having a civil war. And so what happens is, through this whole series of about a thousand years, Israel prospers. But what takes place is oftentimes, regularly, they seek to silence the voice of God. Talk about separation of church and state. In a lot of ways, that's what Israel was all about. As far as the way we can get from God, uh, the better. That was kind of the mentality. And what happened is throughout sort of this thousand year history... You kind of have this, this larger picture. In fact, if you want to read up on it, read like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. All those basically tell the storyline of around this past thousand years. It's not a great history. All right, it's not a great history. It's very real, very graphic. In some places, you just kind of shake your head and think, "How'd that happen?" But in reality, that's the story of the people of Israel's history. They were regularly trying to silence the voice of God. Um, God would come to them regularly through prophets. He would speak. Sometimes God would raise up a good king who loved God and would try to reestablish God in terms of the mix of the uh, political, social, economic life of the people. But ultimately what would happen time and time again, the people of Israel would silence the voice of God. They'd go into great despair. Maybe a nation would come in and, and steal from them or attack them or kill them. They would have a terrorist attack, literally. And they would come back to God, cry out to God for a little short period of time. They'd have another terrorist attack, cry out to God. And this is sort of the repetition of the history for the thousand years. Finally, the people of Israel were kind of moving more and more towards the sense of just worshiping these idols, worshiping these false gods. God basically says this to them. He says, listen, I've been constantly trying to speak to you guys to worship me, to love me, to honor me. But you guys keep pushing me out of your, your life. And God says, I'm going to allow 
for a foreign nation, a very powerful foreign nation to arise. They're going to come and they're going to basically take you guys away from the land of Israel that I gave you. The land of Canaan that was gifted to you. That was a gift from me to you so that you guys can, you know, grow your crops and establish your kingdoms and build houses and have beachfront property and enjoy good waves and climb mountains and, you know, ski on the snow on the Golan Heights and all this great blessing. God says, I gave to you, but in the midst of it all, you, you rejected me. You rejected me. So therefore, I'm taking the land back. There's one other thing I think is important throughout here real quick. God said basically that every seven years, this is important because it's part of the whole biblical concept, uh, every seven years, uh, because they were an agrarian culture, every uh, they, they relied upon the crops they grew. Um, and, and every seventh year, God says, let the land have a Sabbath. In other words, six years, plow your fields, go agriculture, you know, just like do everything you typically do. But on the seventh year, don't do anything. Take a rest, enjoy the beach, go to the mountains, go for very, very long hikes, get married, do whatever you want to do. But seventh year, don't plow. Don't grow crops. And this was God's way of saying, you know, let the land replenish itself. You know, agriculturalists, they actually know that the land sometimes does need to be replenished, the nutrients and the minerals and all that type of stuff, into the soil so that crops can be fresh and do good. And so what happens is, is God says, do this, but they never did it. And so throughout this entire period of time, God says, because you've never obeyed me, because you constantly keep going back to these idols, and because you constantly are pushing me out, God says, I'm going to take back the land that I gave you. Because you want idols, I'm going to allow you guys, I'm going to send you guys into a land that's full of idolatry, and then you'll see what it's all like. So what God does is He raises up the Babylonians in 586. The Babylonians come in. They ransack, they burn, they destroy the nation, the capital, and the temple. Everything was destroyed. Literally the most profoundest of terrorist attacks that have ever happened upon Israeli soil happened in 586. Everything was destroyed. The city was left in shambles. It was nothing but a big smoldering mess. You can read the stories about this. There's a story called Lamentations. Maybe you've heard of it. It's written by a guy named Jeremiah. This is the story of Jeremiah sitting up in a little cleft of a rock, looking over the city of Jerusalem, watching it burn, watching the smoldering remains, and he's just weeping. They're, they're like a series of songs as he just looks over the city and he's bummed because he realizes the city that has so much potential to demonstrate, to show forth how great God is, didn't. And instead was left in just shambles and remains and destruction. All right? What happens is immediately after that, uh, the people of Israel were basically marched off into Babylonian territory, which is modern-day Iraq. It's about a four-month journey. Okay, I want you to think about this. The way the Babylonians conquered was they would go into a territory and they would basically take away the best people of the land. All right? Those that were most educated, those that were the strongest, those that were the youngest. So, uh, as I mentioned a little bit last week, if Canadians, and it's just a big if, if Canadians decided to invade, alright, California, they came down all the way into California, all the way into San Luis Obispo, got mullets, saying a lot, and they're ready to take you captive. 
they would literally take probably the majority of our church, right? We're young, we're educated. You'd all go away. They'd carry you all the way back up to Canada where it's freezing and everybody watches hockey. And, and it's like you're in this foreign, distant, horrible land. And that's what happened with the children of Israel. The Babylonians came in, says we're taking over, and they literally went into the highest places of society and says we're going to take you, we're going to take you, we're going to take you. Part of that group of people that they took, one of which was a guy by the name of Daniel. Right? If you ever read the book of Daniel, Daniel is maybe around 12, 14, 15, nobody knows exactly for sure, but probably a young kid. Daniel would have been marched off into exile over this four-month journey into the land of Babylon. Okay? Now think about that. Four months journey, it's a long, long way to travel on foot. And they would march you all the way back into Babylon. And once you're in Babylon, everybody's bummed, everybody's sad. It's an interesting little bit of an insight. Why don't you guys turn to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. I want to read this to you because it's basically a psalm that was written during this very period of time when the children of Israel, I can imagine in my mind, they were probably marching across the land. Once they came into the land of Babylon, their captors were basically saying, why don't you guys sing us a song? Right? We hear that you Jews are real happy people. Right? You guys sing a lot? Why don't you guys sing us one of the songs? That's kind of the context of Psalm 137. Here's what Psalm 137 says. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and of our tormentors, mirth or joyfulness, saying, Sing to us one of the songs of Zion. Verse 4. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill, and let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. What I want you to feel is this pain, the anguish that the children of Israel would have felt. Okay, Some of these people like Daniel. I mean, I imagine Daniel, because by the time you get to the book of Daniel, read the book of Daniel, Daniel was a godly man. He was a young guy, but he loved God. Was Daniel part of this national calamity? Not necessarily. He was just a kid who lived in Jerusalem. His leaders, his forefathers, maybe some of his family members were part of the bigger thing. But God always, in the past, had dealt with people on sort of this larger uh, national type of a level. And so what had happened was, here's Daniel marching across. You can imagine all these Jews sitting down. They're bummed. The last picture they had in their mind, maybe as they were walking up over the mountainous region there of Jerusalem, uh, eastward towards Babylon, was sort of the smoldering remains of what was the most beautiful city on the planet, Jerusalem. And, and the most amazing spot where God intersected earth. The temple. And here in their minds are just reminded flames destroyed their entire city. And they're being told by their captors, come on, sing us a song. Tell us a joke. Give us some good news. And they're like, we can't. Huh. Our city's destroyed. Our, our temple, which represents God showing up in the midst of our people, we brought this on ourselves. We, we were sinful. We disobeyed God. We rejected Him. And we brought this on ourselves. And therefore, the judgment of God 
upon our city, upon our temple, upon our kingdom, upon our families, upon our lives. We're guilty of it all. And here they are in a foreign land. Now, 70 years go by. Okay? 70 years. People of Israel have settled in. We're told that what had happened was once the children of Israel came to Babylon, um, not so much that they quickly forgot Jerusalem, but what had happened is they realized they had to make a living. And once they came to Babylon, the Babylonians basically just said, integrate, right? Become part of our community. And what had happened was the Jews, once they came into Babylon, they, they did that. They did, they did just that. They started businesses. Uh, they began to thrive. Uh, many of them became wealthy. In fact, um, it was in Babylon that the modern-day concept of synagogues had begun. All right? um, they realized that there was no temple for them to worship. They needed a place to meet, to gather, to congregate, to talk about God, to talk about the Scriptures. So they basically started these little, uh, these little places where they would gather, and they called them synagogues. They started schools, they're called yeshivas, where they would meet and gather and congregate and talk about God. Um, it was in Babylon... Uh, where they would basically first write down many of the oral traditions. This was called the Babylonian Talmud. So, so Babylon basically became a place of great thriving for the Jewish people. Now fast forward to the book of Ezra. Now in the time of Ezra, all of a sudden we come to chapter 1, verse 1. Now we're going to get to the text. We're going to read and see what happens. Alright, so 70 years go by after the captivity. Here they are. Verse 1 says this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout the kingdom, and also he put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build for him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all of this people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and to rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, that he is God, and he who is, that he is God, and he is in Jerusalem. So what happens is we have this, this decree of this guy by the name of Cyrus. Now what you're not told about is basically the background as to what happened here, because this is assumed elsewhere in the scripture. In fact, um, you can go backward one page, to the last chapter of the book of Second Chronicles. Take a look at the last few verses, kind of picking up around verse 22, all the way down to the very last verse. It's like verse 22, verse 23. Both of those verses are almost identical, word for word, with the first few verses of, of Ezra. Almost identical. Um, and this is what has led some people to believe that Ezra probably uh, had written the book of Chronicles, or at least these two books kind of dovetail together, and they begin into this new story of which Ezra was the author of. So what happens is guy by the name of Cyrus uh, becomes king. And we're told this story in the book of Daniel. All right? I'm not going to go into the whole background. You can, again, pick up the message from last week. Check that out. But what happens is this guy um, Cyrus becomes king. Um, there's this bloodless victory. There's nobody dies as he takes over. Um, well, I mean, some people die, but it wasn't like a huge battle. He ends up becoming king. Um, he was a Persian, and he was also, uh, you know, sort of in operation with um, one of the kings who was over this group of people called the Medes. So the Medes and the Persians take over. They're kind of in leadership now, and all of that which belonged to Babylon, which was a lot, now belongs to this guy named Cyrus. Because Cyrus operates according to a different rule book, that the way that the Persians worked 
was rather than let's bring everybody who's our captive into our land and just sort of make them integrate, Cyrus actually kind of did things exactly opposite. Where rather than sort of pulling people away from their land and trying to destroy nationalism, here's what Cyrus does. He says, I want to repatriate every nation, and I want nations to be strong. All right. So if you Jews are away from your homeland and you're really bummed about that, I want you to go home. Go plant your crops again. You know, go have oceanfront property again. You guys have a Mediterranean Sea. Enjoy. I mean, that was Cyrus's mentality. So what happens is he makes this decree and says, everybody go back to your homeland. If you want to go back, if you want to stay, great. If you want to go back, go. I want you to be successful. I want you to, to do well. I want you to prosper. And wherever you prosper, wherever you do well, always remember, Cyrus helped you. I mean, that was kind of the mentality of the king. And he was, he was kind of a genius. I mean, some people think, well, maybe Cyrus was a, was a believer. Maybe he loved God. I don't necessarily think so. I think he was just a really good politician. Really good politician. He knew that the best way to earn people's, you know, respect is not by sword, but just be nice. You know, let him do what they want to do. And obviously within respective boundaries, but let him prosper. And that was kind of his mentality. Which kind of brings up an interesting uh, historical thing. There was this, back in the late 1800s, um, a bunch of uh, archaeologists discovered this thing called the Cyrus Cylinder. Okay, this little uh, slide that's right here, it's called the Silas, uh, Cyrus Cylinder. And this was discovered in 1879, as it says up there. It was actually written in cuneiform uh, Sanskrit, which I have absolutely no idea what that means or how to read it or anything like that. But that made me sound a little smart. And uh, we'll, we'll translate. Some, uh, uh, it's actually not a word-for-word word translate. But anyways, um, this is what they discovered kind of on this thing called the Cyrus Cylinder, which happens to be in, uh, in England today. You can actually go there and look at it. Um, so the, what you're looking at on the bottom there is sort of the cylinder. It's about, I don't know, maybe this big. It's got a big chunk out of it, as you can see right there. So we're not able to know exactly what the whole entire thing said. But this is one of the portions that they had uh, translated. It says this, The sacred centers on the other side of the Tigris, whose sanctuaries have been abandoned for a long time. So this is Cyrus's decree. It says, I returned the images to the gods, or of the gods, who had, resist, who had resided there, that is, in Babylon, to their places, and I let them dwell in eternal abodes. I gathered all their inhabitants, and I returned them to their dwellings. This is straight out of antiquity. All right, this is this is this is not Bible. This is this is this is completely aside from that. This is just a random discovery they find, and has this inscription in it, which is almost a direct connection to the first few verses of of, of Ezra, which to me is amazing. You know, the fact is is that what happens in the book of Ezra. Basically talking about how this, you know, pagan king says, go back to your countries. Or, Here, by the way, I'll fund the whole thing. Here's millions of dollars. Here's all your treasures back that, that you know, Nebuchadnezzar had stolen. You guys go back to your cities. Go back to your places. Prosper. And when you make sacrifices to your God, say a prayer for Cyrus. That's basically what's happening here. And that's what's being communicated in the first few verses of Ezra. To me, what this tells me is that the Bible, even though it's, it's, it's subject to so many uh, skeptics attack today, is actually reliable. It's a, it's a reliable historical piece that can be confirmed through little things like this, little archaeological digs that we realize, wait a minute, 
So this, this is not just some made-up story, but it actually happened. All right? So I think it's an important thing for all of us to just kind of understand in terms of the Bible and how important it is for us to realize it is a book that can be relied upon. So it takes place, as we see kind of the degree of Cyrus, he makes a statement, everybody go back, and uh, I'll give you everything back that was taken. Because remember when the Jews came over to, to uh, the region of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar had taken everything. Everything. So if you read the last three chapters of Chronicles, everything was taken. Everything that was gold, everything that was silver, everything that was part of kind of a utensil within the, uh, the, the temple was taken, stolen, and brought into the foreign land. All right? One thing was not taken. This is kind of fascinating. Okay? This, kind of, this is what has led rise to a lot of speculation. There's one thing that's not taken, nor is it returned. Does anyone know who it is? Take a guess. From the temple? Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Where's the ark? Like, nobody knows. Right? Steven Spielberg thought it like went up into heaven. Right? Nobody really knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's funny. I've been to Israel several times. I've asked every... Like tour guy, I'm like, where's the ark? They're like, I know. Well, tell me where. He's like, I'm not going to tell you. I don't know if they just do that as a joke, just kind of lead you on. But there are some Jews that actually believe they know where the ark of the covenant's at. But it's interesting to note that because once the temple gets rebuilt in Jerusalem, this this is called the second temple that Ezra is writing about. The second temple never has the ark of the covenant in it. What's so significant about the ark? The ark happened to be, if you would, the intersection, the point of contact where heaven, God's domain, and earth, man's domain, interconnected. It was the place where they would call it the Shekinah, meaning the weightiness, the glory of God would show up. So here's the way that they thought about it, was that if you were someone that was wanting to meet the living God, where would you go? you would go to wherever the Ark of the Covenant was, which happened to be in the temple, which happened to be in the Holy of Holies in the temple. The second temple that's going to be rebuilt is an arkless temple. All right? By the time you get to the first century where Jesus is around, you got this whole religious system that's all about pomp and all about glory, but the reality is there's no temple. There's, there's no Ark within the temple. In fact, I think to kind of prove the point that Jesus is trying to make even in the New Testament, that the God that you worship within Judaism, focusing upon the temple, there's no ark in the temple. And to prove the point, here's what happens. When Jesus dies, the veil's ripped. All right, top to bottom. This veil, this veil that was like hiding out the contents of the back room, the Holy of Holies, and so now everybody was, it was kind of like the emperor's actually naked. That's kind of what happened. It's like everything that we had put up and says, this is the way you should do it because we're leaders, we're the religious leaders of the world. It says, if Jesus is saying, no, 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 everything's wrong. What you need is the glory of God, the presence of God, and what you've been being sold is a bill of goods without the presence of God. You've, given, you've been given a temple, you've been given a building, you've been given substance without anything that actually pertains to the very weightiness of God's glory itself. You know, that's the way a lot of Christians actually are, I think, today in America. They look at Christianity as, I go to church, I have my Bible, my name's monogrammed into it, I've memorized a few verses, my grandma's a Christian, and you've got this whole list 
to kind of go down and say that I, I know I'm a Christian, but the reality is, do you, do you love God? I mean, do you actually, there's the presence of God in your life. Or is it just an empty shell? Is it just some sort of empty experience? And maybe you come to church and you sing songs and everything kind of feels good for a moment, but you go back out onto the streets, your life looks nothing like the living God. That's just religion, guys. It's religion. Aside Jesus saving us from our sin and our wickedness and our filth, I think actually Jesus has come to save us from religion. Empty religion. Right? Empty religion. So what happens is everything sort of kickstarts. Cyrus pushes everybody back, says, you guys go back. What we're going to see now in terms of just kind of some words of the prophets of the time, I want you to hear about what happens throughout the story. All right? It's actually chronicled through a lot of uh, prophets of that day and the age, one of which was a guy by the name of Jeremiah. Here's what he says. It's kind of a fascinating story. Um, because Ezra starts out, he says, so that all of this would fulfill the word of Jeremiah. So in other words, everything that's about to happen in this book literally is a fulfillment of something that God had already written. Okay, I, I love this. And I've been trying to communicate this over the past several months. That your Bible, your Bible is actually a script. It's a script. God wrote it. God's in charge of it. In fact, God is its key player. God is its main actor. God wrote the thing. He's its main actor. And he's directing the whole thing. And he's funding it. Everything is completely controlled by God. Alright, some theologians like to use the term, the sovereignty of God. I happen to believe God is in charge of the whole deal. And, and little snapshots that indicate this are little phrases like this. When Ezra starts out and says, listen, everything that's about to happen in this book was written by Jeremiah, and it's all fulfillment of this. So that means that what you're reading here was a book that was actually penned by God, and is all literally being played according to a script that God Himself had written. What I hope this does for us is it causes us to realize that even though we live in America, even though we find ourselves in midst of some sense of prosperity, or at least the illusion of prosperity, the story is not about us, guys. It's not about us. We spend so much time focusing our efforts, our mind, our thought, our energy upon how we can make life cush for myself. Alright? God's like, it's not about you. You're just a bit player. Right? You're like a second. Right? Your role is like the dude who's behind the car that only gets like a millisecond of exposure on the scene. That's it. And you're off. Right? And you're just like, it's all about me! You're like, you're a stuntman. Alright? You're a doubler, doubling for somebody. The story's about God putting His greatness on display. Right? So here's a few verses. Jeremiah 25, verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin. This is written some 70 plus years prior to this fulfillment of Ezra 1. It says this, uh, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, referring to Israel. And the nation shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon 
that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon the land all the words that I have uttered against it. Everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against the nations. So what he's basically saying is that I'm going to use Babylon. They're going to conquer my people. But then I'm going to judge Babylon for conquering my people. <laughs> you know, it's guys like, I'm in, I'm in charge of this whole deal. All right, next verse. Take a look at this. Uh, in Jeremiah uh, 32, it says this. Now, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, again, Jerusalem, of which I say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. So what God's saying is that, listen, I've given the city of Jerusalem over to the hand of the king of Babylon. All right? He is going to do whatever he wants to do with it. Verse 37, Behold, I will gather them from all of the countries which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell safely. They will be my people and I will be their God. What I think this verse is establishing is that God's saying, that, listen, I take seriously sin and rebellion, and I will judge sin and rebellion. What I think the beauty of this verse is basically God is saying is that what is in its ultimate end is not judgment, but mercy. God's mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a beautiful truth because some of us today might feel, we might go through seasons where we just feel like, I deserve God's wrath, right? I've done something so wrong in my life. You feel defiled. And the reality is that, you know what? God will have His way with sin. That's why ultimately God does have His way with sin through Jesus dying for us on the cross. But it doesn't have to end there. It doesn't have to be the final part of the story that God's mercy seeks to come to you and save you and redeem you and wash you and cleanse you and purify you to take away the defilement that you feel. That's what God wants to do. Take a look at the next verse. It's in uh, Isaiah chapter 44. This was written a long time. Almost a hundred years prior to the people of Israel, uh, I'm sorry, prior to Cyrus even coming on the scene. Alright? Um, Isaiah writes this. This is, by the way, this is one of those verses that oftentimes has led some higher critics or scholars look at the book of Isaiah and say, ah, there's no way Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah. There's no way. Because a guy like Isaiah who writes this type of stuff, there's no way he can write about a guy by the name of Cyrus, even before Cyrus lived. So therefore they do what they call late dating, meaning that uh, the book of Isaiah was actually written at a later date than what was originally thought to be. Um, all that's not true, because anytime you read Jesus talking about Isaiah, guess who he says wrote the book of Isaiah? Isaiah. Every time. Jesus quotes from all portions of the book of Isaiah that are basically broken down, so now there's no way Isaiah wrote that. Jesus every time says, Isaiah wrote this, or Isaiah said this. So here in this particular statement, it says this, Who says of Cyrus? He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall build, and of a temple your foundation will be laid. Um, some believe what happened was perhaps uh, when Cyrus comes on the scene, some may have gone to Cyrus and been like, check it out, we found this in our ancient text, it talks about you. I mean, I mean who doesn't want to read a letter with your name in it, right? I mean, you know, we're pretty vain people. I mean, you know, you look at a picture, who's the first person you look at like in a group picture? Right? You're like, ah, oh, i got to find myself. Oh, my hair's like parted in the middle. That's horrible. You know what I mean? You look at yourself. It's, we, we have this tendency where we're like, we want to 
find out what are others saying about us, what do they, you know, what do we look like? And here's Cyrus, probably no different. I'm like, ah, oh, check it out. I'm in the Bible. That's cool. So what happens is Cyrus is, is found here, and it says that he's going to be God's shepherd. God's going to use him as a means to restore and uh, reestablish sort of the foundations of the city uh, and of the temple, which was destroyed. Okay? So I want to jump ahead and take a look at just a few final things. That within this whole concept, the next verse I want to pick up at about verse 4, it says this. It says, And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place with silver, gold, with goods, with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So what's happening is sort of uh, right after this um, edict, uh, he immediately jumps in and basically like, listen, anybody who is able to help, let them help. Help with what? Now again, this is where I want you to catch all of this. The, the book of Ezra is about a group of people who have been displaced, who have been taken off into exile, but have been freed from that exile. God in mercy has freed them from that exile. And now by freeing them from this exile, God's saying, listen, join me. Join me in establishing and showcasing my greatness for all the world to see again. That's the story of the book of Ezra. So God's saying, listen, join me. We'll get this thing going. And so what happens is as this edict goes out, Jews, go ahead, return. Here's some money. Here's all your vessels. Go back and do what you want to do and prosper, right? By a pagan king. Now the Jewish people amongst the nation are like, let's do this. God's behind this. God's hand is upon us. There's sort of like this mentality stirring across these people that have been living there for 70 years or so. Now remember, some of these people are settled into their jobs. Right? They, they've got good lifestyles there. Some of them got like grandchildren, great-grandchildren. I mean, they've been there since they were little kids. 70 years is a long time to go back into a land that some people have never even seen before. Why would you want to go back to a country you, you don't even know anything about? All right? So that's what's happening. And so what takes place is they're basically saying, whoever wants to join and be a part of this, it would be awesome. Right? You can give of your money. You can give of your time. You can give of your treasures. You can give of yourself to join with us, to come. About verse 5, it says this, um, Then rose up the heads of the fathers, the houses of, Ju- of Judah and of Benjamin, and of the priests, and of the Levites, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go rebuild the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and gold and goods and beasts, uh, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, uh, well, first of all, every, all these people, you know, not everyone, but all the people that had desired to, all the people that God had stirred in their hearts that felt, I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of God's pronouncement of the greatness of His name back in Jerusalem again. I want to be part of that. Some people could not physically go, right? Think about it this way. Okay, Daniel. Daniel was 16 years old when he went to Babylon. 70 years go by. How old is Daniel now? Come on. You guys are really... What is it? 86. He's an old guy. I mean, can you see an old guy like Daniel traveling four months across the desert? No. So I doubt if a guy like Daniel went back to Jerusalem. He's an old guy. But I can imagine Daniel being back in Babylon, being like, listen, I'm going to pray for you guys. Here's some money. Here's some blessings. Here's some food, whatever. I want to bless you guys because I want to be a part of this movement. I want to be part of this mission of not only repatriating 
the great city of Jerusalem, but reestablishing the greatness of God by building up this temple. That's what's happening. But verse 7 says this, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord, Nebuchadnezzar, had carried away to Jerusalem, and he placed them in the house of, uh, and he placed them in the, in his, in the house of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought out these in charge of Mithridath, the treasure, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them. Thirty basins of gold, a thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, four hundred ten bowls of silver, a thousand other vessels, all the vessels of gold, silver, were about 5,400. And all this did Sheshbazar bring up with the exiles where they brought up from, uh, where brought up from uh, Babylon to Jerusalem. So the point that he's making here is this, is that Cyrus brings up all of these pots and pans that were part of the ancient temple. And he says, listen, this belongs to you guys. Take it back, build your big temple, worship your God, Pray for me and prosper. All right? And the very last verse I think is significant because uh, Ezra writes, as he writes this, he says, listen, all of this was brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Which actually in the original Hebrew is kind of an interesting phrase. The way that the wording is done there is actually very uh, connected to language that was associated with the Exodus. In other words, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, there was wording or usage of the wording in the Hebrew that basically indicated God brought Israel up out of Egypt and into Canaan. And here Ezra basically takes that same concept and says God brought us up out of Babylon and back into Canaan. And I think what he's trying to do is saying, this is an exodus. We have been in exile. We have sinned against our God. We have rightfully deserved judgment. But God has been merciful. God has been merciful. And He wants to call us to join Him, to accompany Him, to reestablish His glory upon the face of this earth. He's saying, join me. God's call is to stir the hearts of these people to join Him. To say, come. To say, come. You guys, the point that I want to finish with is this. So often we think that our lives, that the sum total of our lives are about getting our education or paying our bills or changing diapers or making a car look really nice or adding rooms to our house. We think that that's like the sum total of our lives. And yet the reality is, is we end up missing out on the bigger blessing, a bigger call, the bigger mission that God calls us to. Yes, life may incorporate elements of everything I just said. But the reality is the larger purpose, what God says, I want to define you by, is that you would live for the glory of my name. That you would live for my greatness. That you would live in such a way that showcases that displays, that pronounces, that announces the glory of God to this whole world as still living in blindness for the fact that He not only created all things, He sustains all things, He rules over all things, and He's the God over all things. If you're here and your eyes have been open to that, I 
challenge you. I call you. I urge you. See the fact that God calls us to come on mission with Him. To live differently than the way that we used to live. To not live for the things that the rest of this world lives for. To live for something greater. Don't waste your life trying to find and pad and secure and establish life for yourself here and now. Live for something greater. Live for the greatness and the glory of God. That's what God called His people to. He says, come. Be part of this. Jesus, prior to dying, prayed for His disciples. He says, Father, John 17, He says, Father, I pray for them. Don't take them out of this world. Keep them in this world. But keep them safe in this world. And Father, help them to love one another so that when they see them, they will actually see me. Jesus' prayer is, is, Father, I want the world to see that I'm great. And I want the world to see that you're great. And here's what Jesus does. is He prays. He says, God, the way the world's going to see that I'm great and that you're great, get this, it's not through your knowledge of prophecy, although that's great. It's not through how many verses you can claim. It's not how big our church is. It's not how much Christian lingo you've been able to master. Jesus says it's by my people called by my name loving me and loving each other. He says when the world sees that my people love each other and love me, they're going to just see that I'm a great God. Jesus says, Father, while they're in this world, protect them from the evil that would come to sidetrack them from this mission of loving me and loving each other. That's Jesus' prayer for us. I, I want to finish up here. And I want to do something real fast before we have worship come on up and, and wrap things up here. I want to take about three minutes. All right? I want to take about three minutes. And I want us to break up into little groups of six, kind of like a little interaction time. All right, if you're here, you're not a, not a Christian, um, you're like, oh, this is what church is about? Today it is, yeah. Not all the time, but today. Um, and I want you guys to do something here. All right, I'm going to put a little question up here on the screen. And what, what I want you to do is I want you to, to think of three things that keep, us respond, that keep us from responding to the call of God, really to be on mission with Him, doing everything that in our power to showcase, to announce His greatness. Okay, three things in our lives. What are some of the hang-ups? What are some of the reasons why we today, right now, in our current lives, do not live in a mentality that says, I'm on mission. Everything I do, I do for the glory of God. Everything I do, I do in such a way it's going to showcase the greatness of God. Do you realize that's what marriages are all about? Some of you like Mary, you're like, oh, I just thought it was about surviving. No, actually, it's not. <laughs> Believe it or not, marriage is actually about husbands loving your wives in such a way that Christ loved the church. Why? Why the heck does Paul tell us to do that? I'll tell you why. Because he says this is a model. Marriage is a model to show the world how much Jesus loves his redeemed ones. Right? Some of you might be like, you know, what's family about? 
All right, I'll tell you what family about. The whole point behind family is so that this unit of people who got all sorts of different personalities, different desires, different actions, responses to things, that God's power and grace can actually love one another and forgive one another. So that through forgiveness and love and care and honoring one another, that actually becomes a model to the world of the way Jesus calls us into this family. Same thing with you if you're a business owner or an employee. That, believe it or not, is part of a way that God says, serve your master in such a way that you bring honor to God. My point is this, guys. Our entire lives, if you're a Christian, you're called to live in such a way we're on mission. We are to demonstrate how great our God is in everything that we do. Everything. So I want to break up right now. Three minutes or so. You guys break up into groups of six. And uh, what are three things, three things that keep you from responding to living, following God on mission to showcase, display His greatness? All right? Three things. Go for it.
Okay, guys. Time's up. Finished. Stop talking. Just kidding. Um, hey, real quick, I just I want to hear. Um, we're gonna finish with a couple songs of worship. I'm curious. Um, what are some of you guys' answers? What are some reasons why we don't follow God with all of our heart on mission to showcase His glory? What are, what are the things that hold us back, hold us up? Fear of rejection? Yeah. Powerful one. What else? We fail to trust God? Yeah. Kind of take matters in our hands. Pride? Distractions. What type of distractions? Gadgets. Facebook. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> what else? Dishonor your family. Mm. Give me some examples. Yeah, it's hard to respond, especially when you got a really tight family that uh, has a very staunch religious way of doing things, and you want to live in a different way, and kind of rejection in some ways, huh? What else? A couple more. What's that? Comfort? Yeah, we get kind of comfortable, don't we? We don't want to mess up that comfort. What else? Yeah, it's absolutely true. A lot of times we're, we're just not even sitting there listening to God's voice. We're just not even listening to it. We're just, it's not even a thought on our mind to listen. Be still. Listen to His voice. What else? One more. Doubt. Yeah. Doubt. Sure. I want to finish with this last thought. Um, next chapter talks about people coming over from Babylon. Uh, historians tell us that there were over a million Jews in Babylon taken away. A million Jews living in Babylon at this time of Ezra 1. Um, Ezra 2 actually gives us a tally of how many Jews come over. 42,000. 42,000. Check this out. 4.2% responded. Only. 4.2% responded to the call of God to showcase, display His glory. If that means, it's exactly what Jesus says, many are called, few are chosen. We hear, that means the reality is, a lot of us here today, I, mean, I, I wish it could be different, I hope it's different. The reality is, for us here, we're going to walk out of here, we're going to forget everything that was said. We're going to go right back into our life. I want to pray that it's different today. I want to pray that today we hear the voice of God. And today we... Join God on a mission to showcase, to display His glory, realizing that God has provided everything from the timing of His call to the treasures, that everything that was given to this call to serve Him, to showcase His greatness. I'm going to pray. We're going to finish with a few songs of worship, and then we'll dismiss you guys. Father, thank You for Your greatness revealed here even now. Lord, we pray that we just open our eyes and 
transform us and change us, that we would be different people here today, living for you, serving you, loving you. We give you this time right now. Lord, help us to respond to worship and love.